you know, to me, I think the number one benefit for uh, employing systematic frameworks, uh, particularly through the lens of macro risk management, is that it allows you to, you know, sort of distill all the noise. There's so much noise uh, out there with respect to investing. And, you know, you, you know, we, we've all have it, you know, we all turn on our Bloomberg's and they tell us the top stories and the stuff that everyone clicks on and you go on CNBC, turn on Bloomberg the TV and, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's so much noise out there in terms of the information that is being generated, but obviously not all of it is actionable. And most of the time, all of it, it's, it's actually quite, quite harmful for you in terms of, um, your, your ability, your, your reaction to, to some of that information. So, you know, distilling noise into signal or defining signal amid all the noise is, is probably the, the biggest, um, benefit of having a systematic process. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode, Jack and I step into the macro world with Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. This is a wide-ranging conversation around economic regimes, asset classes, risk management, return expectations, and systematic methods for managing a portfolio throughout an economic cycle. Darius shares with us his method for developing macro-related investment strategies, and we talk about where things stand in today's economic environment and the changes he sees on the horizon for the economy and how that may impact certain asset classes. Anyone interested in learning and thinking about the macro environment will like this conversation. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with 42 Macros, Darius Dale. Darius, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate you guys, man. Thanks for having me on. We're going to talk about macro investing, different macro strategies for different economic regimes. I think what we're seeing in today's market and economy and also about how investors should be, I think, looking at or thinking about their portfolios and, you know, quite possibly repositioning. But before we get into um, all that, I wanted to ask you if you could just sort of share your story, um, how you got to where you are today, um, going to Yale, playing football, um, getting into sort of this macro world that you're in. If you could just help our audience understand a little bit more your background and who you are, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Justin, man. So it's, uh, it's more a function of just be kind of being in the right place at the right time. I know that's probably a cliche, um, you know, when you ask questions like this, but, you know, truly my life is a result of a lot of happenstance. Um, so kind of taking it, you know, I'll be quick, but, you know, taking it back to my childhood, um, you know, we, we grew up very poor. Uh, my folks were uh, drug addicts. And so, uh, you know, we were kind of constantly, you know, in and out of a uh, home, you know, in and out of homeless shelters and things like that. Uh, and, you know, I got very lucky and fortunate. Um, ironically, uh, we got evicted heading into my third grade year. Um, and I ultimately wound up, um, you know, going, to, we lived in a homeless shelter that was near uh, a, a charter school called Del Mar Harvard, um, as indicated by the name. It was obviously a really good school. And so that one year of, of kind of charter schooling education um, really equipped me with the sort of acumen and, and, the, and the educational tools necessary to really stay ahead of my grade, you know. So, you know, when I got back to the, I guess, quote unquote, poor schools, if you will, you know, I wound up being, you know, two, three grades ahead of my classmates, you know, really for the most of the rest of my schooling, um, all the way through high school. So I was a very advanced student um, from that regard and that respect. Um, how I played football is, or sort of how I got to Yale kind of go, coincides with, you know, my career on the gridiron. Um, very reluctant career. I didn't want to play football. I was uh, you know, a nerd at heart. Um, I actually, um, you know, was playing pickup basketball game and uh, was going up for, uh, you know, I, the story at this point is, is a dunk. Uh, it's probably a layup, but you know, as I get older, the story was, a, you know, now it's like a 360 windmill between the legs dunk. <laughs> I, it'll be me jumping through the gym roof five years, five, 10 years from now. But, um, you know, I was going up for, uh, for, for to score and, and I actually blew out my knee. Um, and in that recovery process, I wound up gaining about 100 pounds um, over the course of the next year because that was my leg was immobilized really for about a year. Um, and I wound up being an offensive lineman. Um, and it turns out I wound up being a pretty good offensive lineman and got the, the attention of some of the Ivy League schools and, and ultimately chose Yale. That's great. You know, it's, it's one of those things I think about with the, with the education. It's like one change, which was a big change at the time, going to a different um, charter school. But that sort of set in motion just kind of reminds me like the butterfly that flapped its wings. And then, you know, this tsunami happens, you know, across the, uh, you know, across the world somewhere because of a little change puts you on a trajectory to go in a completely different 
direction in your life. Absolutely. And I've been very fortunate for that. And look, I mean, that's the, that's, 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 markets are like that. Everything is like that in life, right? You don't know what can ultimately turn out to be a blessing in disguise. So it really, you know, behooves us all to be prepared for those opportunities when they do show up. So how'd you get interested in the markets and macro? I'm guessing in the uh, football huddle, you guys weren't talking about like um, supply and demand. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all, man. Especially pre-crisis. You know, I mean, like, you know, the anybody who's played, you know, Ivy League football, certainly, you know, I'm guessing most Ivy League sports will tell you the, the goal, you know, you, you, you're basically sacrificing your, your college scholarship because um, Ivy, Ivy League doesn't have any merit-based scholarships. You're basically sacrificing the opportunity to get your college pay for free with the guarantee that, you know, some alum is just going to give you a job, you know, on Wall Street or whatever industry um, you come calling in. And that was generally the case. Um, certainly was not my expectation, uh, you know, throughout the time I was on campus, um, but obviously 2008 happened. Uh, you know, I graduated 2009, right? At, you know, kind of at the depths of the financial crisis, the depths of the the Great Recession, and and you know, clearly that that chain of command really broke down. Um, and and sort of how I wind up on Wall Street, um, you know, specifically, uh, you know, during 2008, you know, the, when everything's melting down, and then really into the fall of that year, to our senior year, our senior season, you know, I noticed a lot of my buddies were actually getting their offers rescinded. Or, you know, the folks that hired them, they couldn't get a hold of them because obviously folks are getting fired on across Wall Street, obviously, particularly in, in Lehman. Um, and so, you know, the reality is, is you know, it, it became pretty clear that there was going to be a, a, a jobs crisis. And, and, and my former boss, uh, Keith McCullough, who runs uh, Hedge Irish Management, uh, being the astute trader that he is, puts out a full page ad um, in the Yale Daily News um, saying, hey, we're hiring, um, you know, kind of looking to build, uh, build a firm, a research firm uh, near campus. And ultimately, that was kind of my first job. I, I, you know, stayed there for a really long period of time, but, you know, took advantage of that opportunity. You know, it reminds me not to just make this at all about us, but it, Jack and I, with Validia, the first time around, it was like 98, 99, 2000. We were uh, part of what I would call Validia 1.0 and how that when you go through something like that and then you're you're involved in something like the financial crisis or you were kind of getting your first job sort of on the tail end of maybe coming out of that. We went through the dot-com boom and bust. We have obviously been through the financial crisis with our firms as well, but how those early uh, experiences can be very formative and influence sort of the way that you look at things and you're thinking, because that's the first thing that you saw. Yeah, totally. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, so to think about like how I think about the world now, this very, you know, rate of change oriented uh, mindset, regime segmentation, you know, all that stuff is is not what your traditional sell side shop does, right? You know, I kind of got the, the the flexibility and the free reign to create a lot of process and source a lot of sort of, you know, models and tie it all together, which was great, man. I, I really got to, you know, I, I look back on that experience and realize like, hey, look, if I just went to Goldman Sachs or, you know, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, obviously those uh, those firms have incredible training programs, great analyst associate programs. But the reality is I would have just become another you know, economists automaton, like a lot of those, a lot of folks who sit in those seats, there's nothing wrong with those seats, right? They're highly paid, highly compensated, really thoughtful individuals. But, you know, quite frankly, you know, I don't think those are kinds of people you want helping you manage macro risk, because that's not really their role uh, and their function in the, in the marketplace. So, you know, we got to build out a lot of really good process uh, in my former shop and, and learn a lot and, and you know, really kind of, you know, again, as I mentioned, just tying a lot of um, stuff together as a being force fed uh, a bunch of wonky material or, or something that, um, you know, kind of has been regurgitated across Wall Street. Yeah, that's kind of the one thing that, you know, we were thinking about in terms of talking with you is sometimes these macro forecasters get picked on because it's like they make predict- predictions, which are very hard. It's hard. to No one can predict the future. And I'm just thinking of like things like the, you know, when all the strategies come out and give their year-end S&P 500 targets and how far, and that's not what you do, but how far, you know, they, in the end, they are away from hitting those targets. Everyone kind of is cluster around the mean, and then you have a couple outliers, and then when you look at the end result, like, most were wrong significantly. So, I mean, what, to what extent do you believe it's possible to predict the future of the macroeconomy? Yeah, absolutely. So, I'll, Justin, I'll definitely answer that question. Let me, let me take a step back real quick. And sort of um, and be kind to our, our friends on the sell side, right? Their job is not to effectively predict markets. Their job is to use as much information as they can, either talking through companies or or iterating on, uh, on and building models and things of that nature to formulate a consensus in the marketplace. Um, that consensus becomes the basis by which you know folks on the buy side manage risk. 
And so the kinds of, you know, sort of models and solutions that the, you know, traditional sell-side economists or even, even um, you know, sell-side analysts on the equity and credit side, you know, the kinds of models that they employ are really not designed to price risk well or understand, you know, changing probabilities and things of that nature. They're more designed to sort of be explanatory, if you will. And so that to me is, um, that's a critical feature of why, you know, you see a lot of forecast error um, from what's realized in markets versus what's predicted. It's not that these folks are not good at their job or, or not very intelligent individuals. They're extremely bright individuals. It's just that they're doing something very different than uh, what I think ultimately we're doing as investors and, and people who are tasked with managing risk. Yeah, that's a uh, fair point. Um, thank you for that. I think um, one of the things that I wanted to try to talk to you about, and Jack's going to, we're going to kind of get at, at a more granular le- level, how you go about the, the inputs into your model and how you utilize these things. But I want to ask you, I b- believe a lot of this is a systematic process. So here at Validia, we follow a number of quantitative models. We are strong believers in systematic investing. But from your perspective, what are the advantages of a systematic macro-based process and model? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I, 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 it shocks me that not everyone is doing it from a systematic standpoint, right? We've gotten a, a lot of you know good feedback and information from you know folks like Dalio. Say what you like about him or not, but the reality is he's built a very large, and successful firm. You know, systematizing macroeconomics and macroeconomic risk. Um, and so, to me, I think if we're if we're going to do this at, a, at well, you know, we ought to be standing on the shoulders of giants, um, as I try to do. Uh, here at 42 Macro for our clients. And so, you know, to me, I think the number one benefit for uh, employing systematic frameworks, uh, particularly through the lens of macro risk management, is that it allows you to, co- you know, sort of distill all the noise. There's so much noise uh, out there with respect to investing. And, you know, you, you know we, we've all have it, you know, we all turn on our Bloombergs and they tell us the top stories and the stuff that everyone clicks on and you go on CNBC, you turn on Bloomberg the TV and, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's so much noise out there in terms of the information that is being generated, but obviously not all of it is actionable. And most of the time, all of it, it's, it's actually quite, quite harmful for you in terms of um, your, your ability, your, your reaction to, to some of that information. So, you know, distilling noise into signal or defining signal amid all the noise is, is probably the, the biggest um, benefit of having a systematic process. But I think a stealth benefit, and uh, this doesn't really get talked about enough, but you know, clearly, I think we've all figured out that the Bayesians won the, the debate <laughs> between Bayesian and frequency probability theory as it relates to, to investing and, and, and managing risk in markets. Um, you know, from that perspective, obviously, you know, most of us are doing some form of a Bayesian inference process. Uh, we certainly consider ourselves to be doing that at a very high level uh, here at 42 Macro. And, and, you know, having a systematic process really allows you to understand and, and really contextualize changes uh, in the environment, uh, you know, you can you can spot changes much easier and spot inflections in critical variables much easier if you're you know sort of re- religiously you know being counting the data and, and and sort of you know updating the models and iterating the models. One of the challenges, at least for for amateurs like myself in the macro space, is you know a lot of the major macro data we see, whether it's CPI or it's GDP, we're seeing that data a long time after it actually occurred. So there's that significant lag there, and I'm wondering how do you how valuable do you think that data is in terms of predicting the future, given the lag it's presented with? Yeah, no, great, great, great question, phenomenal question, and so clearly when you're using data um, like GDP or any any economic statistic or any company fundamental as well, right? You know, I think it's a little bit different with macro than company fundamentals because in company fundamentals, you get less information um, on a consistent basis. Whereas with something like uh, economic growth or inflation, you're, you're sort of getting information throughout the month that sort of leads you into the kind of the next major release or major set of releases. So um, it's different in that regard. But, you know, let's start with something like GDP. Um, GDP is a very important indicator um, because it's obviously, you know, gross national product is what we all agree to agree uh, is the overall economy. Um, and that that agree to agree function, in our opinion, is is why we all sort of anchor on it um, as the sort of you know dominant unit for for measuring uh, the economy, measuring economic growth, because it's you know comparable across countries for the most part. You know, there's some methodology uh, differences, but for the most part, we can all agree across borders that this this gross domestic product is is what we're all trying to sort of look for. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that gross domestic product should be your dependent variable in a in a in a, in a, mark, in a model or your main variable that you're using to forecast uh, for the markets. We actually don't uh, forecast GDP. Uh, we, we interpolate, you know, our forecast for you know, something like the composite leading index time series um, as a proxy for GDP because, uh, you know, one, 
that data series is monthly, so we're getting more frequent, more higher frequency updates, and so we're able to update our models and, and readjust uh, those uh, those forward-looking probabilities uh, more consistently, much faster, with much less sort of um, you know big big jump conditions in in, in that process. Um, and then secondarily, it tends to lead you know. So what we're trying to do is find predictors that lead the things that everything everybody cares about. Um, and, and what we know is that you know the composite leading index time series um, again, which we use to forecast growth, tends to lead uh, inflections in the GDP cycle and the in the year over year uh, rate of change GDP cycle by one to two quarters. And so that's why we, we tend to anchor on that. You know the inflections in, in momentum in growth and inflation in particular, uh, which again is the hallmark of our regime segmentation process at 42 Macro. Those inflections and in in that momentum, you know, are what markets are using to price in. Um, you know, uh, dispersion across asset classes and dispersion within asset classes. Yeah, you mentioned your process a little bit. You've developed a really interesting grid process here where you kind of look at growth and inflation and sort of divide into four different grids. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, great question, Jack. So uh, yeah, so the our regime segmentation process, as mentioned, uh, is, is really, you know, do, it is dominated by understanding changes in growth and inflation. Um, and what we're trying to do is identify sort of what state of the economy is in from the perspective of, of the trending impulse in growth and inflation. So there's four distinct states uh, you can be in as a function of those two marrying those two variables. Uh, the first state um, is where growth is trending higher and inflation is trending lower. That's what we call Goldilocks, um, you know, from the perspective of, of asset markets that tends to be sort of risk on with the disinflationary bias. Um, the second state uh, is when inflation, both growth and inflation uh, that impulse is positive simultaneously. Um, that tends from an asset market response perspective, that tends to be risk on with the reflationary bias and inflationary bias. Um, the third state is what we call inflation. That's where the growth impulse is negative on a trending basis, but the inflation impulse uh, remains positive. Um, that you know the asset markets tend to tend to be risk off uh, with the, with the inflationary bias. And then lastly, um, what we call deflation. That's where both the growth impulse and the in, in inflation impulse are both negative. Um, the, the asset market responds is typically risk off with with a with a with a with a disinflationary bias. When you when you sort of look at the grid system, is it, is it just as important to figure out sort of where we're headed in the grids as well as where we are, or do you really focus on where we are right now? Yeah, so both. Uh, you you need to understand where we are, and and you know the hallmark of our you know process for you know helping investors construct portfolios, balance portfolios that are designed to take advantage of macro risk to the upside and to the downside is understanding where we are today, the kinds of securities and exposures that are likely to do well today and, and or versa or, or vice or, or, or kind of are poised to do poorly today, you know, to the extent you, you can't have short exposure in your fund or your portfolio. And then understand the likely change in the economy and moreover the changes in, in policy, because policy is a big factor of what we in terms of quantifying changes in policies is, is, is something we really keen on doing here at 42 Macro because it has a lot of impact uh, in, in determining asset market dispersion. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's important to understand where we are today because that'll explain a lot of the, the sort of um, dispersion you see today on your screens or the anticipated dispersion over a short window of time. And then when you understand where we're likely headed, you can then start to construct portfolios that are designed to take advantage of, you know, some of these changes, these big changes, you know, for example, you know, going from, you know, reflation to deflation, you know, that's a pretty big sea change from the perspective of, you know, the kinds of securities and assets you want to belong in your portfolio and long and short, you know, it's more or less the polar opposite of each other. And so understanding that economy can make such a pivot over some forecastable time horizon, everything we talk about is usually under a year um, from the perspective of, of managing risk. Uh, we obviously have longer term views, but, you know, they really don't influence our, our portfolio construction. Uh, but understanding how the economy might evolve over that sort of you know medium term duration can be very extremely can be extremely valuable to an investor. You know, not chasing certain assets that have a, a short shelf life, really sizing up and grossing up you know assets that you know potentially have a, a long roadmap for positive performance. You know, getting rid of things you know from your portfolio or side, uh, or taking down your exposure to the, the positions that are unlikely to do well or outperform, you know, that, that having all that color, you know, from a growth and inflation impulse perspective, from, you know, the impulses within monetary and fiscal policy, understanding all that and how they have historically influenced asset markets is extremely powerful in terms of the size of positions you put in your portfolio and obviously the exposures therein. Taking that same question and looking at the current situation, where are we now on the grids and sort of where do you think we might be going, you know, say in the next 12 months? 
Yeah, great question. So uh, right now we're in inflation. We have been in inflation for the balance of the second half of, of 2021. So as, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, inflation is, is the grid regime where in growth, the growth impulse is negative. It's been delta negative on a trending basis really since July of last year. Um, you know, and inflation impulse continues to be uh, positive. That you have been infl- obviously, <laughs> you know, inflation is the number one, two, and three uh, headline on most uh, financial news media um, outlets. And so, you know, it's no surprise that you know inflation is trending higher. But you know, the growth impulse being negative is something that really started to get priced in asset markets from a from a sector and style factor leadership perspective. You know, kind of going back to the June of last year, um, and it's certainly starting to get priced into the credit markets. You know, dating back to kind of December, January of this year, last December as well. Um, and that's something that we think will continue to get priced in uh, as the mark, as the economy. And again, this is not just the U.S. economy. This is a global phenomenon as well of transitioning from inflation to deflation. Um, and that's, again, where both growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously on a trending basis. Our models have that, 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 that commencing sometime around late Q1, early Q2 here in the U.S. economy. Roughly thereabouts the same for the global economy as well when you kind of anchor on Europe and Japan. And the reality is, is that may bring on a, a secondary set of market risk, um, you know, in and around kind of this transition of potentially slowing through and, and, and potentially to trend to sorry, to and through trend uh, from a growth perspective, um, because that's certainly something our model sees as a, as a reasonably probable scenario, whereas consensus expectations is something we can unpack later in the discussion. Consensus is still very much elevated with respect to its, its GDP and its EPS forecast. I think you. I think you said in a different interview. You might see some risk of maybe even say like a twenty or thirty percent decline at some point this year in the market, right? Given given sort of the dynamics and where they are. Yeah, no, I think that's a. <laughs> I think that's a, a very likely scenario. So there's sort of in terms of a. So let let me start by saying, one, you should be thinking about being more defensive in your portfolio when we talk about being in either inflation or deflation to begin with, right? These are the grid regimes, and we back tested you know everything six ways through Sunday. Um, from the perspective of our grid regime process, we understand you know expected returns by asset class or by exposure. We understand percent positive ratios when you're in certain grid regimes or certain styles of grid regimes, i.e. being in a deflation with a quantitative tightening bias, which is obviously exactly what we're likely to have happen um, you know, throughout the balance of this year. Um, we understand you know, sort of what volatility and covariance are across, um, across asset classes, again, through the lens of that process. And so understanding those four Critical features again: expected returns, percent positive ratio, volatility, and covariance allows you to very, you know, cogently understand, you know, kind of the risk reward setup for an exposure, and more importantly, the risk reward setup for a given subset of exposures. I.e., if you're an equity PM, what sectors and style factors are poised to do well, and how should they handle this transition to, you know, uh, deflation over the medium term? You know, what fixed income sectors are poised to do well? Types of currencies are poised to do well? Things of that nature, and that's something we. We make readily available and, and, and publish uh, as part of our research because to me I think that's that's what you, you that's what macro risk management is is understanding the dynamics in the economy that actually influence asset markets and more importantly influence them across cycles to you know considerable degree. Obviously, on any given trading day, you know Putin and Biden or you know the forget the guy's name in Germany I'm blanking on it, but Macron in France, you know um, you know any given day what they say can have an influence over markets. You know, from a geopolitical standpoint, or you know, you get these squirrely things like the, the the Robin Hood squeezes and all that stuff. But you know, that stuff tends to be more sort of episodic. And what we're trying to do, obviously, in in in, in helping investors understand these big macro risks, uh, is try to find things that cause markets to trend, cause you know certain dispersion patterns to trend. And that's exactly what we think. What we think will trend um, is the market pricing in deflation plus rate hikes plus quantitative tightening plus fiscal tightening. Those each of those those subcategories all has its own back test, and they're all you know sort of um, you know uh, built into our into our expectations for for market risk. I want to ask you a little more about portfolios construction. I'm probably misquoting you a little bit, but one of the things I think you've said is it doesn't matter if we're in a bull market or a bear market. What matters is that you're in the appropriate assets. Um, and, and I know with a lot of macro forecasters, you know, you'll get these forecasts, but you won't necessarily get how do I combine all this together into a portfolio I can use. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about how you think about the process of constructing a portfolio using the information you have. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a great question. So let me start by saying, uh, you know, that quote, I, I think, is a, is a very under appreciate it quote um you know of mine if i if I, i'm probably biased but <laughs> you know taking my biases at face value you know what i really mean is that you know this characterization of being bullish or bearish is 
one, a misnomer, and two, I think it could potentially be dangerous, particularly when you're talking about retail investors, because they tend to be, you know, sort of overweight one central theme, or even worse, overweight one central duration in terms of the risk that they're taking in their portfolio. And I think that's a, you know, I think most institutional investors will understand that, that that's generally a bad idea. You know, portfolio should be a combination of themes and probabilities and, and a combination of durations, you know, by which you're trying to sort of exercise um, and extract pre risk premium from the market. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what I really mean by that statement is that, hey, being bullish or bearish implies that you only have one theme in your portfolio. And how we think about constructing portfolios is through the lens of our, of our grid regime process. You know, what are the highest probability grid regimes that are, you know, based on, you know, or so obviously there are four grid regimes, but, you know, what are the probabilities associated with realizing, you know, any one of those four grid regimes over the medium term? You know, if we have 100% probability, at least according to our models of, you know, heading into grid A or B, then we'll be, you know, 100% allocated to grid A or B, you know, because we think that's the highest probability out outcome over the next three to six months. And we're kind of constantly on a rolling three to six month look forward. You know, but however, there are times, and, and certainly this was the case throughout the second half of 2021, where the the the, prob the distribution of probable outcomes is fairly flat. Um, you know, with the probability of being in grid, you know, Goldilocks or reflation or inflation or deflation. You know, they're all fairly clustered in terms of losing, you know, impulse, losing momentum from growth and inflation. I.e., they're not moving in a big direction in either direction, in either um, moving in a big material magnitude in either direction. And so, you know, we really try to allocate across the four grid regimes in our portfolio construction process um, to account for that, you know, kind of that flatter distribution of probable outcomes. And then when you're talking about security selection, so what we're trying to do with security selection is identify, um, you know, sectors, style factors, any, any exposure, any macro exposure that can be clearly and cogently represented, um, you know, kind of through the lens of, you know, understanding, you know, what's its relative volatility and covariance versus the broader subset of things that I'd want to be long or short in a particular regime. What is its you know relative expected value um, and percent positive ratio of things that I want to be short, uh, a long or short relative to the other subset of, of exposures in that particular regime, and you know we 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 reduce it all uh, reduce all the dimensions for all these things to you know help investors visualize it very clearly and cogently, and ultimately you know when we put everything together, let's say hey look right now our process is saying the dollar is a is a is a is a is a, is a thoughtful long idea or long term treasury bonds is a place you want to be starting to allocate to. Um, from the context of, of, of pivoting to a deflation regime over the medium term, right? Like, so if, if you long-term treasury bonds, you put a dollar in there, obviously you put some defensive equities in there. These are all different asset classes. And this is the, this is the tricky part when you're talking about constructing portfolios across asset classes, because, you know, clearly certain assets have higher volatilities, higher covariance with equity beta, credit beta, you know, things of that nature. And so what we try to do to minimize that sort of overall risk of the portfolio by not overly allocating to the wrong kinds of assets at the wrong time is we you know we have our what we call our volatility adjusted position sizing process and what we're trying to do is is understand relative co relative semi-variance between any each of the exposures in the in the portfolio construction for example if an exposure has is in the upper third of of, of, of semi-variance for that particular sample of exposures that we have represented at any given time we'll have that be a three percent position um, if it's in the middle third, we'll have that be a 6% position. Uh, if it's in the um, lower third of semi-variance, um, we'll have that be a 9% position. So we're constantly allocating to, 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 to having bigger weights to, to the exposures that have, you know, sort of lower downside deviation risk. Yeah, and there's a huge lesson in that too, you know, not making, putting all your eggs in one basket or not making huge bets on one thing, you know, the idea of having a whole process that constructs a lot of ideas together is, you know, in anything you do and what we do too as factor investors, it's all, it's all such, a, it's such an important thing. Totally, totally. Yeah, you guys do really well as well. You guys, I love. You know, you, you guys. What what strikes me is 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 really cool about what you're doing is you're constantly learning from the market, sort of like how to evolve your portfolio construction process. I've certainly got some of those messages from you guys in, in recent months, which is look like we think we can try to figure out this this. You know, I think the what we're talking about right now, portfolio construction, is sort of the last and final frontier of finance, if you will because there are technically no right answers. We've not proven um, any one particular thing to work all of the time. And so as a function of that, um, as a function of the markets constantly changing, constantly adapting and, and giving investors new signals and, and punishing them for relying on stale signals, you know, this is always gonna be a moving target, but 
I think generally some of the more generally accepted principles of what you guys are doing, what we're doing is obviously sort of you know having your positions be inversely correlated to how whatever unit of risk you might you might um, you know think it is uh, whatever however you quantify risk we use semivariance as obviously as a as our uh, guiding factor but you know other investors use different different tools. Before I hand it back to Justin, I just want to take a quick tour through the major asset classes. And based on sort of what your outlook is right now, I want to see what, what your thoughts were on each one of them. You sort of talked about equities a little bit already, but I'm, I'm wondering beneath the surface in terms of factors. I mean, what factors do you expect to do well going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of the, so going back to that, that portfolio construction process and our, and our grid asset market back test process, what we're really trying to do is sort of identify based on what our models are signaling, based on, you know, forward guidance out of the Federal Reserve, you know, observe guidance out of the Treasury Department. And, and we again, we can do this you know, for any economy, just sort of looking at changes in fiscal monetary policy, is ultimately understand kind of the fiscal and monetary policy dynamics that should go along with our, with our um, projected, you know, kind of path uh, and magnitude of change for, for things like growth and inflation. And so when you think about all the sort of things we can program into the system, that'll sort of give us the relative, you know, again, expected returns, percent positive ratios, volatility and covariance, across each of these exposures, you know, what we're looking at is, hey, what's the grid regime we're gonna be in? What's the speed of the change in growth? What's the projected speed of the change in, in inflation? You know, sort of what's the Fed doing with its policy rate or central bank doing with its policy rate? What's the central bank doing with this balance sheet? Um, you know, what's the fiscal authority doing? And then lastly, what's the rest of the world doing? And right now, answering each of those sort of questions is, hey, we're heading to deflation. That's growth and inflation slowing simultaneously. We'll have the minus two sigma delta on growths, which, and what that means is, the projected uh, sort of um, the projected uh, deviations in the, in the growth uh, from the trend are likely to be you know roughly two sigma relative to to the sample relative to the trailing through your sample and so we're talking about an expeditious slowdown in growth you know, we're talking about a minus one sigma delta uh, on inflation and so that it applies a, a moderate deceleration in inflation you know inflation i.e inflation remaining you know decelerating but remaining stickier than probably and not probably it's our models would say they are likely to remain sticky Inflation is likely to remain stickier than most economists expect. Um, obviously, the Fed's hiking rates, that's getting priced into rates markets. Um, you know, Clearly, the Fed has given us enough guidance on quantitative tightening to understand that it's probably going to be here as soon as April or you know, certainly by May or May or June. And then lastly, we're going to be in a fiscal contraction for at least the next couple of fiscal years. So um, thanks, to the, <laughs> thanks to a record ill-advised uh, stimulus package uh, that we received in, in March of last year. So um, we know all these dynamics. And more importantly, we understand how each of these dynamics, because again, these are all rate of change facts. You know, there's nothing I said is qualitative. We know the direction of travel for growth. We know the, the magnitude of change in the impulse. We know the direction of travel for the policy rate, the direction of travel for the balance sheet, the direction of travel for the fiscal balance. All these things can be back-tested. And we've, we've created time series for all these things to back-test asset markets, again, through the lens of volatility, covariance, perspective, respective returns, and percent positive ratios. And so programming all that information in, it'll tell you, sorry, getting the long-winded answer to your question, it'll tell you that, you know, sort of from a style factor perspective, low beta is, is clearly, you know, head and shoulders, one of the best places you can be. High dividend um, is also another place you're going to want to be. Um, you know, there's, there's pockets of, you know, the markets that may be okay to survive. Clearly, there's this rotation uh, into value. Um, but our, our process would say, you know, there's pockets of value that might work. But one of the, the kind of places that we think investors might get caught wrong footed, you know, by the time we get into the spring and summer of, of 2022, is this sort of chase into high beta cyclicals. You know, high beta cyclicals are precisely the wrong place part of the market uh, that our process would suggest uh, you're going to want to be long. You know, kind of whatever the opposite of a high beta cyclical is, is the kind of exposure you're going to want to be long if you're, if you're talking about managing, you know, kind of the next two or three quarters of risk. Everybody seems to hate bonds right now. And, and I think from listening to you, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think you're a little bit more constructive on bonds than most people are. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your outlook for bonds. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, uh, you know, just kind of taking it back away, taking it away from the, the grid regime process, because that, that process tells you to be long bonds here now as well. You know, taking a step back, just thinking about where we are in the inflation cycle. You know, there's only one thing and one thing only to do when inflation peaks, when reported inflation peaks, and it's buy bonds. You know, it's pretty simple. You go back to, you know, recently it's Q4 18. You know, you go back to sort of, you know, Q1 of 2015. You know, you go back to, um, you know, kind of early 2010. You know, there's all these opportunities and, you know, sort of, sort of throughout my career. And, you know, we can take this back as far back as the data goes to say, hey, look, when, when 
everyone is clear and clearly and under, readily understanding, you know, that inflation is a problem or that, you know, the Fed is recognizing that inflation is a problem. The next step is to play it forward in terms of the Fed's response, the economic response to both Fed tightening and inflation itself, because the inflation itself has impacts on the economy as well. And the real, the, 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 the result is that we see a, a sort of downside deviation in, in, in GDP and growth from its trend. And that, that has historically been a very, very positive um, signal from the, mark, from, from the economy to, for investors on the long side of bonds. And so, you know, it's always hard to hold your nose and make those calls. I mean, you know, for, for the, I'll, I'll give you a story. Back in, um, in Q4-18, you know, we were making a, you know, kind of a similar, similarly styled call back in my old shop in terms of saying, hey, look, growth and inflation are going to slow. The Fed is likely to continue tightening. Um, you know, maybe a little bit less robust in terms of all the numbers and understanding it all, but, you know, very similar style call that we're kind of making today, which is, you know, look, we're at the peak of the inflation and growth cycle and everyone's short bonds, but all these dynamics that have caused investors to be short bonds that, and again, we were short bonds throughout most of that time as well, that cause investors short bonds, like i.e. accelerating growth, accelerating inflation, you know, fiscal tire, fiscal monetary tightening, all these things are really, really um, unsupportable bond prices. You know, those things were all starting to, to get peeled back at the margins. And so that, in our opinion, is something that, that a very similar setup exists today. You, I may know the answer to this one already based on your idea of inflation peaking. But uh, a lot of people, as much as they hate bonds, love commodities right now. Um, what is your outlook for commodities? Yeah, absolutely. So commodities, you know, if we're talking about, and again, I mentioned this, and, I, and I'm sorry I didn't uh, answer your question earlier. Um, you know, if we're talking about a potential, and again, I mince no words about this. I think it's very easily that we could see a 20 to 30% decline in the S&P 500 in 2022. I, I, you know, will we see one? I think that's a, that's up for debate, uh, very clearly up for debate. But uh, it's certainly the conditions exist uh, from the perspective of positioning where we are in the business cycle, from the perspective of valuations, and ultimately from the perspective of the grid regime process we just talked about to see a 20% decline in the, in, in the stock market. And so if we're talking about something like, like a crash in the stock market, it's very unlikely that we see commodity prices survive that because, again, these are among the highest beta of risk assets you you know investors have in their portfolios and so you know folks are losing money in their equity portfolios they're not buying you know more copper and palladium and corn you know they're, they're probably selling those things at the margins you know just to make them just to raise cash or you know kind of take down their overall risk um, and so you know the reality is you're probably unlikely to see commodities uh, do particularly well but we've done a lot of work on this from a secular perspective you know, and then this is one thing that uh, chaps my butt, if you will. I, I, don't, I won't use the A word, but uh, you know, it really chaps my butt because, we, again, we have all these investors. I get on, I hear all, you know, hear all these podcasts and I certainly, you know, see it on, on Twitter, on finance Twitter. Everyone's in the inflation camp, the secular inflation camp, but no one's quantified what that actually means. Like how much more inflation are we going to get relative to the previous trend? And that I have yet to hear one investor actually say that. And so being fed up with this sort of narrative-driven investing uh, dynamic around inflation, you know, we've taken it upon the liberty to ourselves to create a, you know, a, a you know, very advanced dynamic factor model to understand, hey, where has, where has the stationary mean of inflation trended towards? And right now our math is saying that's somewhere around 2.4 to 3% on headline. That's a big deal because the headline, the, state, the previous stationary mean, at least the mean of the last prior decade, was 1.8%. So you're talking about you know, not quite a double, but, you know, certainly a material deviation higher uh, in the stationary mean of the time series. And so that means commodities as, a, as, a, as, a, as an allocation to the median investor portfolio needs to go up relative to the decade, you know, that we just exited. It means digital economy exposures, intangible assets needs to go down um, uh, relative to the previous decade. But that doesn't mean that at every interval, we need to price that in. Right. The inflation is still going to cycle. It's still going to go from seven and a half, at least by according to our math, to, to roughly around four percent by the end of the year. And that, in our opinion, is a negative impulse for, for commodity prices and commodity price speculation, which is really the critical dynamic, because it's not about you know, whether or not there's supply and demand imbalances. It's whether or not there's supply and demand imbalances in investor behavior and their willingness to chase an asset class. That, that's what matters to price. If, if you told me a couple years back that inflation was going to trend way above what people thought, I would probably have said gold's going to do really well. And it turns out gold has not done really well. And I'm wondering what, why you think that is and what you think the outlook for gold is going forward. Yeah, so there's two answers for that. One, I think, you know, it's competing. It's got its competing assets now, um, you know, digital kind of digital currencies, crypto, all that kind of stuff. Certainly it's probably taken a, some wind out of the sails in terms of gold flows, right? I mean, think about kind of the, what the gold industry has really tended to. It's become, you know, fear-mongering videos to scare baby boomers and Gen Xers 
into to allocating the gold relative to stocks. Well, those fear market videos don't work on millennials and Gen Z investors because we have crypto. Uh, and so I think that's part of the reason why um, you know, there hasn't been as much sort of positive response to you know, what had been a pretty aggressive uh, de uh, decline in real interest rates, um, you know, going back to the, the middle of last year. Um, on the, you know, sort of, so that, that's one, one dynamic that's probably weighed on the gold price. I think there's a more tinfoil hatty dynamic, if you will. Again, I, I, I limit myself to sort of one tinfoil theory per year. And, and I think central bankers broadly around the world are likely leaning on the gold price. Um, you know, you know, it, just if you look, run any sort of regression analysis, any, you know, even the most cursory, you know, linear regression model will tell you that the price of gold should be somewhere around $2,100, $2,200 right now. And so the fact that we aren't is telling you that there's some forces in the market that are presenting that or are preventing that. In my opinion, I think that the easiest thing that a central banker can do to sort of weigh on, you know, sort of kind of, you know, prevent, you know, inflation, you know, runaway inflation fears, you know, getting, getting entrenched in society is leaning on the gold price, making sure that gold is not on a parabolic ascent, you know, and all the marketing around gold being on a parabolic ascent itself is on a parabolic ascent. So that's my tinfoil hat explanation to, to answer your question there, Jack. And just finally, one more before I hand it back to Justin. Um, given that it's a high beta asset, I probably know your answer to this, but what are your thoughts on crypto? Yeah, no, I mean, look, so, so my thoughts on crypto, and I think you can extrapolate this from my thoughts on the broader market. You know, one thing that we have to contend with you know, in the middle of this sort of transition from going from inflation from a bottom-up macro regime perspective to deflation is the dynamic, there is the likelihood that growth has a sort of transitory positive impulse as a function of rolling off of Omicron. Um, we're already starting to see that in some of the leading survey data, although not all of it is, is robust, but generally speaking, we're starting to see leading survey data unthaw in the month of February, and that's likely leading a, a sort of a, an actual sort of acceleration in some of the lagging hard data, either in February or March, you know, that's something that could last into the spring. Um, you know, we've, we've long thought that Omicron was likely to be the sort of variant that transitions COVID-19 from you know, the pandemic to the endemic phase. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not, sorry, I'm more than not sure. I'm, I'm, I will take the other side of the consensus expectation embedded in growth forecasts that the transition from the pandemic phase to the endemic phase results in this big consumer spending boom and this big economic boom that you know, that needs to be tapered and, 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 and toned down by, you know, fiscal monetary tightening. Um, we don't see that boom as a likelihood, as a high probability scenario. In fact, you know, we've got about, at least in our most recent slide deck, which you do on every month, 130 slides that really take the other side of that view. Um, but that doesn't mean that the data is unlikely to improve, you know, for one, two, three, potentially even four months into the springtime off of these sort of bombed out January, December, January lows in some of the data. I mean, real consumer spending contracted at a 12% annualized pace in December, right? Like this is in the, in the, in the world's largest economy. So, I mean, you know, the, there's, a, there's a setup here for data to bounce and for things like Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, for high beta risk assets to trade to a lower high before they ultimately give up the ghost again. And I do believe um, that is the most likely path forward for, for, for asset markets. But in terms of quantifying some of that downside risk, you know, we look at things like, um, you know, sort of, you know, household equity ownership relative to net worth, um, you know, where we are in that cycle says we got about 30% downside of the market, you know, things about the business cycle, consumer expectations around the labor market, you know, where we are in that cycle says we got about 36% uh, downside of the market. And lastly, if you look at it from the perspective of valuation through um, the, the real earnings yield in the S&P says we got somewhere between 30 and 35% downside of the market. And again, these are just looking at median drawdowns relative to, to sort of, you know, prior trigger points and prior cycles. And we're very much at trigger points for each of those indicators now. And so, you know, I, I worry about the market risk associated with the economy that is potentially set up to materially disappoint consensus expectations, potentially slow much faster than investors realize already based on some of the tightening dynamics that have already been priced in. And then secondarily, you have a Federal Reserve that's hell bent on, you know, chasing a lagging inflation dragging, looking backwards and driving the car backwards. Um, that is potentially not abreast or aware of or, or even in a position to respond to some of these risks to the growth outlook. Darius, we're a couple minutes into the fourth quarter, so we're doing, I think, pretty good on timing here. Um, I wanted to uh, kind of pivot here and ask you a little bit more about the Federal Reserve um, and their response to the financial crisis in terms of interest rates, quantitative easing, monetary policy, sort of just get your your sort of sense and evaluation on that. And then as a, as a secondary question, I'm gonna to try to put both of them in here. Um, 
you know, when you look at what the government did in terms of the fiscal stimulus with COVID, I mean, you mentioned something earlier that maybe that, you know, stimulus that came in, in 2021 wasn't needed, um, what your evaluation is there. And then if you could also talk to, if you have an opinion on, you know, has this introduced some additional risk or has this introduced sort of a change in the market where maybe investors' expectations, the market's expectations now think, well, the Fed's going to just, you know, obviously they have interest rates, but the government's going to come in and just bail us out the next time we get into some sort of trouble. So do you have, you know, what are your just general thoughts on that stuff? Yeah, so there's sort of three questions there. So starting with the the, the, the monetary response post-crisis, you know, I think we blame the Fed a lot. I certainly did early in my career. I was probably, uh, you know, a young, I guess, I don't know if I'm young millennial or not at this point, you know, 35 or whatever that means at this point. But, um, you know, certainly back then early in my career, having been, Someone who spent, you know, a large part of my life, you know, uh, very extremely poor, you know, you know, waiting around in food bank lines and, and, you know, being evicted several times, you know, I understand like the the sort of dichotomy between, you know, the, the haves and the haves nots in this in this society, and certainly saw the Federal Reserve and their incessant QE as a, as a, as a real, you know, kind of contributing factor towards towards perpetuating a a wider dispersion between the haves and the haves nots in society. So I was very angry at the Fed, um, you know, kind of. Early in my career, I found myself constantly, you know, reading von Mises Institute uh, materials and you know siding with Ron Paul and a lot of stuff. But you know, the reality is, as an investor, that's you know that's neither here nor there. What we're trying to do is, is make money and and take advantage of macro risk and and ultimately risk manage you know some of these macro risks in, in an effective manner. Um, and so you know, once I got kind of out of that mindset, you know, you start to realize like, hey, look, this is really just a game that they have to play as a function. Of the political dis- dissension and discord down in D.C., you're right. Like we can't get the Democrats and Republicans to agree that the sky is blue, let alone on any piece of material uh, fiscal, you know, legislation that could, you know, kind of address some of these imbalances in society and and really plot us a, a better path forward from a productive capacity standpoint. You know, so clearly we weren't getting any really good fiscal policies. So the Fed, you know, in response to every growth slowdown, in response to every tightening of financial conditions, really was the only game in town, and so. I'm not even sure that it's really Bernanke's fault or Yellen's fault or Jay Powell's fault. It's really just we, we kind of dumped the bag on them, right? We kind of tossed the hot potato to them and ran out of the room. Um, and that's that's unfortunately. And, and really, it's just a function of the, the fourth turning dynamics. You know, you know how um, my former colleague, um, you know, is clearly one of the you know, world thought leaders in some of these generational cycles, um, if not the preeminent thought leader in some of these generational cycles. And, you know, he'll tell you, he'll be the first to tell you that, hey, look, look. We're in a fourth turning, and this is this is this sort of political dissension that we're seeing down in D.C. and our inability to get major legislation done is a symptom of being in a fourth turning and a symptom of you know kind of these generational imbalances that that have accumulated in society over the previous kind of you know eighty or eighty to hundred years, and so that's exactly where we are. Uh, we're going to need to see bigger legislation, bigger solutions to some of these you know big you know big existential threats out there. Obviously, inequality is one of them. Uh, climate change is one of them. I'm sure there's a bunch of other that, I, that I'm missing. Um, but the reality is the Fed is slowly trying to hand that baton to fiscal policymakers. But the reality is they're not going to be able to do that until we get a big enough crisis to catalyze that big change in, in, in fiscal policy. Um, and sorry, what was the, the second question, the third question? It was just uh, the response to the pandemic and the fiscal stimulus. And then what, you know, what type of risk has this introduced here? Yeah. So, so this is why that, that package in March was such a stupid idea. We were, they finally, Congress finally got aligned in a way where that you could actually push through meaningful legislation that would actually address and tackle, you know, one of these big, big, big issues in society, whether it be, um, you know, sort of inequality or a climate change. But the reality is, I don't really understand what caused them to do this, but it seemed like they panicked and just wanted to sort of get a big win early on uh, in the Biden administration by you know, sort of authorizing another $2 trillion of, of fiscal spending that effectively amounted to just, you know, consumption, you know, just, just, just governments, you know, issuing investors treasuries in exchange for consumers, you know, getting money to spend on, on incremental goods, because obviously the services economy remained you know, quite depressed. And so to me, the, the fact that they sort of opted for that style of spending, as opposed to more thoughtful, longer term spending that could really you know, address some of these major issues and, and really contribute to the productive capacity of the economy and support jobs from a longer term perspective, to me, it's just a big miss. It's a big, it's a big deal. And there's no, there's no other way that you can describe that policy 
Um, and, and really, it, it, that policy itself was just a result of the you know, federal authority, the fiscal authority, really underestimating or sort of overestimating the productive capacity of the economy at that time. You know, you're giving investors, you're giving not investors, consumers, um, you know, incremental money to spend in a time where the productive capacity of not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy was really depressed as a function of the pandemic was, quite frankly, a really dumb process, dumb process. You know, just it's, it's dumb in the context of their longer term objectives and some of the longer term things we need to get done as a society. And it was obviously dumb from the perspective of, of that, that, that productive capacity as well. So that's what I think about that. <laughs> I want to ask you about the Fed's tools to deal with inflation. You know, before the COVID crisis hit, I was listening to Ben Hunt of Epsilon Theory on a podcast, and he said something along the lines of, there's no such thing, there's no such, there's no deflationary crisis that can bring the market down. Because no matter what deflationary crisis we get, you know, they're going to throw everything they can at it, and it's going to bring the market back up. And he was sort of proven right um, in the COVID situation. I mean, we had a, we had a quick decline, and we, we were right back. It seems like the tools are maybe a little more challenging on the inflationary side for the Fed, um, because you have these consequences in terms of they could slow the economy. They, they, the market could, you know, may react very negatively. Do, what do you think about the Fed's tools to deal with inflation and sort of you know, what they have available to them and what the potential consequences of that will be? Yeah, their tools to deal with inflation are much more powerful than their tools to deal with deflation. I mean, the problem with dealing with deflation is eventually you hit the lower boundary, the lower bound of, of the policy rate, and you have the results are sort of more indirect measures of controlling the, the supply and, and price of money, i.e. quantitative easing for guidance, you know, uh, regulatory policy in terms of, you know, uh, lending ratios and all that stuff on bank balance sheets. It just becomes a lot harder to sort of, you know, fight the good fight, if you will, if you're trying to stave off deflation. Say, fighting inflation is easy. You can take the policy rate to infinity. <laughs> you can contract the balance sheet back to zero. I mean, you know, like, you know the, they can get rid of inflation as quickly as they want because ultimately their, their tools to deal with inflation are, are pretty obvious. They're, just, they're designed to slow the economy. They're designed to, to weigh on excess demand relative to the productive capacity of the economy. The Fed, in, you know, as a function, um, in my opinion, as a function of the, the, the November jobs report and the October CPI data, which both came out, um, after they sort of, you know, sort of outline their, their, their path towards tapering, you know, the, you know, as a function of those data points, you know, the Fed basically said, hey, look, we have to reassess, reassess our expectation, our views on what the productive capacity of the U.S. and global economies are. And obviously in that reassessment, they realized that, hey, look, this sort of labor shortfall analysis, this framework that we've been anchoring on to, to maintain this pretty wacky, aggressive monetary policy in the context of an economy that's growing you know, several deviations above its trend growth rate, um, you know, to me, I think they, that that's when that really catalyzed that that big sea change. And ultimately, you know, and to, because of that reassessment, it really means that all they can do is slow growth, right? Like that's the only solution is, is, is taking the economy, taking demand out of the economy so that it matches the level of, of supply in the economy. And ultimately, that's what they, they have to do, um, if only because of their forward guidance function, Rates markets have already priced in basically, you know, terminal Fed funds rate of two percent, you know, and so or maybe a little bit more at this point after Bullard's comments last week, and so the reality is they, they have to do that stuff if they want to be successful in combating inflation because if they don't do what they, the markets are pricing in, then that'll result that'll effectively result in an easing and obviously add fuel to the fire, and I just don't think the political sort of scope or space there's no political space for them to add fuel to the fire on inflation right now. They can't be observed or seen by the general public as making this this thing worse. Um, you know, obviously there's no real recourse from that perspective. But again, I, I just think these are human beings who you know have their own Twitter accounts or the bare minimum they're reading the Wall Street Journal, and you know they understand that their impact on society is pretty great. And quite frankly, I just don't think that they want to bail the stock market out anymore, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they've achieved a lot of their objectives in terms of you know kind of promoting maximum employment, you know, within the context of the pandemic. And obviously, you know, inflation is well above their, their target level. So, you know, there's really no reason for them to be as dovish. And, and one thing I'll also say on this, I keep hearing from a lot of different investors or, you know, throughout these different podcasts that let's do and everything. The bull case can't be that the Fed's going to pivot after financial conditions tighten. Like if the stock market is down 30% and the Fed pivots back to dovish, that can't be the bull case. The bull case is that's a buy the dip case. You know, <laughs> that's a buy the dip, you know, at the, at the Fed put case. The bull case, in my opinion, would have to be the Fed pivoting dovishly and, and fanning nominal GDP growth, obviously, through the lens of more inflation. But I'm not, I'm not convinced that we, are, we're ever, we, actually, we can actually have that. I think they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, because the economy is very clearly, if you look at the most recent 
consumer confidence data, 10-year lows on, on headline consumer confidence, you know, basically 10-year lows on consumer assessment of their financial health, both relative to the previous year and also rel- you know, from an expectation perspective. Obviously, we're basically 15-year high in inflation expectations. This economy could slide into recession if the Fed doesn't get inflation out of control. And so the better solution would just be tightening us into a what hopefully is a manageable slowdown um, versus you know, sort of not doing anything and allowing the economy to devolve and degrade on its own because clearly you know, that's the kind of the problem that I don't think the Fed's going to be able to solve if they don't have any space and scope on their balance or from the from a perspective of monetary easing, right? They're still at the zero bound. If we slide in a recession anyway, as a function of these inflation processes, you know, kind of you know getting unglued, then what's the Fed going to do? You know, like you're going to take the balance sheet from nine trillion to eighteen trillion? Maybe they can, maybe they don't, but I, I think they probably would prefer not to do that and would prefer to remain provide the illusion that they remain in control of the situation. Darius. Thank you. So this has been, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, a lot of interesting, I think, valuable thoughts that are important for investors to think about. Um, your systematic process um, to investing, I think, is going to be very valuable for people to learn um, and educate themselves on. But we like to ask our guests sort of one standard closing question. It might bring you out of the macro world a little bit, but maybe not. But the, the question is, is based on your experience in the markets and the research, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Well, that's a phenomenal question. Love that question. And this is something I've learned, you know, kind of thinking about the world through a rate of change lens, um, really for such a long period of time and understanding kind of the impact of rate of change on asset markets and, and, and ultimately policymakers is, is the lesson would be to respect the x-axis. Um, you know, I think a lot of times as investors, particularly in the context of valuation, you know, there's there's a there's a there's a understanding of 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 of, of kind of vulnerabilities. You know, uh, whether something be overvalued or you know under or there's an understanding of opportunity. Whether um, you know, sorry, vulnerabilities if something's overvalued and opportunity if something's undervalued. Or you know, you sort of you see these charts. Uh, you know, kind of like. You know, here's a PMI with a six-month lag and, and an inverse triple, you know, log this, and you know, it has this perfect, you know, back test fit to you know this dotted line going and going forward, and it's good or bad, and you know, it perfectly supports the author's thesis, right? And the reality is, a lot of those, 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 you know, a lot of the analysis we do as investors gives us a lot of confidence to make decisions, but the reality is, we often forget that hey, when you talk about constructing a back test on a particular analysis or on a particular model for the economy, you have to respect the amount of time that it takes to achieve that, right? You know, you talk about something like valuation, generally speaking, at least all the work I've done on valuation, I stopped really doing it, you know, kind of five years ago because it became very irrelevant to like our investment duration. Um, And it still is generally relevant to our investment duration, which is valuation doesn't work under, you know, one, two, three years, you know, three years and beyond, you typically start to see valuation have a material influence on financial markets. But generally speaking, you know, you, something can remain over or undervalued for, you know, several years before it really starts to get um, influenced again by, by, by some of those um, positioning dynamics. And, and, you know, I think it's like that with the econometric models as well. I mean, I've seen that so many of these charts where, you know, the author finds this one time series and overlays it with another time series. And, you know, the one time series that leads the other time series by 12 to 18 months is already in place B and, it implies that you know the time series you know B has to go to place B over some you know duration, and they say, oh well, I'm bullish or bearish as a function of that. Well, doesn't it imply that there needs to be 18 months of time to pass between us getting from point A to point B, right? I and mean, I think that's the one thing that I, I think it's um, kind of lost when we see these pretty charts, we see you know pretty valuation setups or it, it pretty anything in, in financial markets, which is it takes time. For those things to be realized, understood, appreciated, and priced in, you know, often several months, several quarters, if not a few years, of time. And, you, and as my friend Mike Taylor, you know, a portfolio manager at Millennium, for a long time, you know, the, that's a couple careers away. I mean, this this game has gotten really hard, and there's a lot more turnover and and violence in financial markets, both on a intraday and a year-to-year basis. And you know, if you don't respect the x-axis, you can wind up, you know, really being positioned in the wrong themes, in the wrong exposures for an extended period of time. And that, that to me is, a, is, is, is no bueno. All right. Thank you so much. Where can people go to learn more about you, follow your research, maybe your Twitter handle? Yeah, oh, thank you. I appreciate you guys. I, I'm at, uh, so we're 42 macro. Um, so we fancy ourselves to be 
you know, kind of one of the thought leaders out there from the perspective of helping not only institutional investors, but also retail and RA investors manage macro risk. You know, quite frankly, I think, um, you know, we, we fancy ourselves democratizing a lot of, you know, really good institutional process on, on some of these dynamics and, and making it available for, for all investors, because that's something that's really important to me. Um, it's really democratizing this, this industry in, in general, uh, certainly as someone who grew up uh, from on the outside looking in. Uh, and then lastly, I'm on Twitter. I'm fairly prolific at Twitter on uh, at 42 macro D Dale D D A L E. All right. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate y'all, man. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.